It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Today, physics at the edge, the widening gulf between physics theory and physical evidence, and the epic lengths to which some researchers are going to close the gap. To the ends of the earth in search of the ultimate answers. That's coming up. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Now, you may already know that we on this show are pretty fond of theoretical physics. Like a lot of people these days, we love those head-spinning ideas about things like extra dimensions, minute vibrating strings of energy, dark matter, multiple universes, and the like. Very intoxicating stuff. But in a more sober vein, we should also say for the record that physics requires more than great notions. It also needs hard data. And the trouble these days is a lot of that data is harder and harder to come by. See, um, physics theory has pushed so far into the remote past, into the distant reaches of space, and into the deep subatomic world that getting any direct clues is just staggeringly hard. You know, it's like physicists are trying to listen to the very faintest whispers from the cosmos. To hear anything at all, you need to do some really extraordinary things. You need to build super sensitive and powerful instruments, often very big and very expensive, with some insanely sophisticated technology. And you need to put these contraptions in really, really quiet places. I mean, free from various types of interference that fill this noisy planet of ours. And that's why these days you'll find some of the most advanced physics and the most futuristic laboratories in some of the most out-of-the-way spots on Earth. I mean, places like lonely mountaintops and barren deserts, underground caverns, and polar ice caps. We're talking spectacular science in spectacular places. It is a rarefied world that many people never get to see, but my guest today is one of the lucky few. Anil Anantaswamy is a science writer, a consulting editor for New Scientist magazine, he spent the last couple of years trotting around the globe, visiting these cutting-edge physics experiments and observatories in some of the most remote corners of the Earth. He describes his voyages in his new book, The Edge of Physics, a journey to Earth's extremes to unlock the secrets of the universe. He'll tell us what physicists are looking for and what he found. Um, you know... I think probably most people out there can name a handful of theoretical physicists, mm. you know, from Einstein through Heisenberg all the way through Stephen Hawking. Right. But I'd be willing to bet almost none of them can name an experimental physicist. I think that's probably very true. Um, they are a breed that sort of uh, hides behind their experiments, and uh, and we don't get to hear of them and their, and their amazing work. And uh, finally... Anything we do in physics, no matter how great the theory, it has to be confirmed by experiments. And we just don't get to hear of them. Uh, and that was my intent, to get behind the scenes. Meanwhile, while everyone's fascinated with the theoretical side of physics, you say, in fact, that theory is in a morass. You use that word. And you say the situation is grave. Um, yes. Uh, I, I did take uh, some poetic license to, <laughs> to say those things. Uh, but if you look at the state of physics right now, I think a, a lot of fundamental questions, a lot of very big, profound questions have piled up. 
and the experimental data uh, over the last uh, few decades has been sparse. And the data that we have got uh, has ended up throwing up more questions rather than providing, you know, big answers. Tell me about some of the big questions that have opened up and that are waiting for experimental confirmation or disproof. Let's take the one that's been around for a while, um, the issue of dark matter. Uh, we know from our studies of uh, the way stars move in galaxies or the way galaxies move in clusters that the gravity of galaxies and the clusters is much greater than can be explained by just the matter we see, uh, you know, the gas, the dust, the stars. So, so it's almost like, uh, to use a cliche, there's more matter out there than meets the eye. The missing mass. The missing mass, exactly. And and it's extraordinary. When you do the calculations, uh, this dark matter, this missing mass, outweighs normal matter 10 to 1. And that's a lot of stuff that we don't know much about. We think it's there. We have theories that sort of give us clues about what it might be, but we haven't seen a single dark matter particle yet. A bunch of invisible matter out there holding galaxies together. If it weren't there, they'd spin apart at the rate they're going. Yes, yeah. It's a, a bit like uh, the guys you see in the pizzerias spinning the dough. You know, if that dough doesn't have enough gluten holding it together... It would, uh, it would disintegrate. It would disintegrate. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure physicists would want to call their dark matter gluten, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's one. You're pointing to that as, as just one of many questions that have arisen that um, really are going to require some kind of real-life confirmation. Somebody's going to have to find out what this dark matter is, and that's going to involve some observations and some experiments. Yes. What other uh, big open questions are there? So the other big open question in cosmology is something called dark energy. So if you go back to sort of the late 1990s, uh, astronomers were beginning to uh, look at how the expansion of the universe uh, is changing over time. Uh, the universe has been expanding since the Big Bang. And the ex expectation was over the last few billion years, this expansion probably was getting slowed down because of the gravity of all the matter in the universe, mm -hmm. sort of pulling back, uh, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, the universe. And so that was the expectation. They were, they were looking at these distant uh, exploding stars called supernovae. And using that as markers of how the universe was expanding, they were expecting to find that indeed the expansion should be slowing down, and they found the opposite. The expansion is actually speeding up. Some would go as far as to say the universe is blowing apart. And the only way uh, at least uh, theoreticians can explain this is by assuming that the vacuum of space, uh, the, the so-called nothingness of space, uh, has some inherent energy to it. It actually you know, counteracts gravity mm -hmm. and causes the universe to sort of pull apart, literally. Mm -hmm. And, and again, the uh, term dark, when we refer to dark energy, is actually um, a statement of our, our lack of knowledge. It's dark in the sense that we don't know what it is. Exactly, exactly. Dark energy is pushing uh, galaxies farther and farther apart to the point where sometime in the future we're going to be all alone. I mean, the, the Milky Way galaxy will be uh, so vastly yep. separated from other galaxies that you know future human beings, if such exist, won't even be able to see these other galaxies. Yes, there are uh, calculations that show that indeed at one point we might just be the only galaxy that we can see, right? Th that has amazing implications, if indeed that were to be the case, because we know that the universe is expanding by observing other galaxies moving away from us. And imagine a time uh, when all you can see is the stars in your own galaxy, nothing else, nothing else. How would you know that you're expanding? How would you know anything about the universe at all? Exactly. So, so there's two mysteries for you, uh, dark energy and dark matter, which together make up 
uh, more than 90% of all the stuff in the universe, and we have no idea what they are. Yes. Or we have ideas, but we have no no proof. Yes, we, we do. Have, <laughs> and and in, a, in a sense, we have lots of ideas. Yeah. We have lots and lots of ideas. And what we are lacking is some sort of confirmation about exactly mm. which one of these mm. ideas is the right one. And there are still other uh, major mysteries. Of course, most people will have heard by now of string theory, a, right. a whole large body of theory mm. regarding the sort of fundamental constituents of the universe at the deepest levels, way below the level of subatomic particles. Yes. And that's been cooking away now for, for decades. Yes. Without a single shred of proof. Um, yes. And uh, the, the string theories themselves are motivated by sort of what they see in the mathematics. And the fact that uh, sort of one of the big problems, uh, apart from dark energy and uh, dark matter, is this idea of trying to reconcile quantum mechanics with gravity. So our, our existing theories of particle physics, the, the so-called standard model of particle physics, describes all the particles of matter as we know it and the forces that act on these particles, except gravity. Gravity is described by Einstein's relativity. And and uh, one of the big questions in physics is how do we combine these two? And, and that's where string theory comes in. That's where string theory comes in. And string theory accomplishes that, mathematically speaking. And uh, and it does so by describing uh, all the particles that we know of as things that arise from the vibrations of tiny, tiny strings. It's a beautiful uh, theory in terms of the mathematics. It uh, obviously brings together gravity and the other forces. But the energies involved and the scales involved are so off the charts in terms of what we can probe that there is absolutely no experimental evidence at this mm -hmm. point. So when you say that, that, that there's a theoretical morass, in a sense you're saying that theory has gone farther out on a limb than it used to go. That is, that it's yes. taken many, many, many years of theory developing without getting that sort of reality check. Yes. that uh, observational or experimental evidence gives to a theory. I mean, am I wrong, or, or did it used to be a much shorter cycle? Einstein comes up with amazing revolutionary theory of general relativity, and it's just, what, four years later that astronomical observations uh, confirm yes. that it's probably right. Yeah, yeah. Even though, you know, history tells us that the experiments were not really well done yeah. at that time. <laughs> uh, but, uh, f you know, it, it did get confirmed, at least in in popular perception. Yeah, uh, it and, made the uh, headlines. It made the headlines. <laughs> Einstein became a celebrity. Yeah. And and thankfully, uh, even though the experiments turned out to be not so um, accurately done, eventually it got proved to be the right theory. Uh -huh. So, um, yes, yeah, so uh, it, it was Einstein's relativity moving hand in hand with experiments, the entire development of quantum mechanics. Uh, which was a you know a, a two or three decades of incredible work. Yeah, the theory and experiments were again hand in uh, hand. Yeah, hand in hand. Yeah, it it always was the case. And then uh, since about sort of the late seventies, I think there has been a paucity of like we're definitely lacking strong experimental data. And I like the term that you use. Theory has gone out on a limb. And you know the further you go out on that limb, uh, and there are many many limbs that they've gone out on, and without sort of experimental data to sort of buttress these limbs or hold up these limbs, they're going to crack. Now, now one reason um, I get the impression for this is that physics has pushed to the point where we're dealing with incredibly tiny scales or incredibly distant objects, uh, distant phenomena, or incredibly subtle effects. And 
even peering into that world is expensive, difficult, and yep. therefore it used to be way back when that someone might actually help confirm general relativity with an ordinary telescope. I realized that that wasn't perfectly well done, <laughs> right. you said earlier. Right. Nonetheless, guys in ordinary university labs could advance quantum physics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And now... You're absolutely right. I think things have become so difficult in terms of the experiments you need to do. And, uh, and not just the experiments you need to do, but where you need to do them. You can't just do it in a, you know, a lab above ground in Stanford. You have to go to some deep, deep uh, underground mine to do your experiment. Things like that. Yeah, things have changed dramatically. Deep underground uh, to the South Pole, to mountaintops, to remote uh, high-altitude valleys, uh, frozen lakes in Siberia. We're describing your itinerary here. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was a it was an amazing journey to take. Yes. I got the idea that uh aside from the the quandary that we just talked about, the fact that uh physics theory has gotten a bit ahead of itself and and now we need to um check on the data itself by doing these incredibly ambitious experiments, but I got the idea also there might have been some personal reasons for this journey you took. Yes, I think um Reading about physics and reading about cosmology has always meant a lot to me. And I, I remember my very first sort of popular physics book, and I think it was called uh, Dr. Einstein and the Universe, or it was The Universe and Dr. Einstein, I forget. How old were you? Um, oh, I was mm, quite old. Um, oh. I was uh, 25, uh, so it was uh, maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, but the thing was that I had bought this book uh, in, in a used bookstore in uh, Seattle when I was doing my master's. And uh, it just went into a box of books that I took with, took back with me to India. And one night I was unable to sleep. And I thought, oh, I'll just read this book because it will put me to sleep. Uh, and I stayed up the whole night. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was incredible. Um, and that was the first sort of intimation that, for, for me personally, that physics did something to me in terms of the feeling for physics, which which you'll be hard-pressed to get physicists to acknowledge, uh, to, to actually say something about their feeling for physics. You've tried. I've tried. Um, <laughs> I think they keep it to themselves, most of them. Um, even if they do feel, I'm sure they feel something, but uh, it's one of those things you, you scientists don't like to talk about. But personally, I've always felt something for physics, and I wanted to capture that somehow, and hence, somehow I felt that just by traveling to these places, uh, using their inherent silence or, or um, just the extraordinariness of the places themselves to, to weigh in upon the physics itself. That, that definitely was uh, at the back of my mind. So it was, it was a pilgrimage of sorts to these places for physics. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you mentioned in the acknowledgments in your book, um, The Edge of Physics, that uh, you were also in the middle of a uh, a novel that got bogged down when you launched yes. this project. Yes, uh, when I said that I was, I wanted to capture the feeling for physics. I think the the initial effort uh, towards that was in the form of a novel. Uh, I I thought that would be the best way to somehow mm. express uh, what physics might mean or what cosmology might mean to a human being. And uh, I got stuck. I mean, I literally could not figure out the structure for the novel. It just sort of slammed itself shut on me. I don't want to probe too deeply, um, but uh, can you tell us at all about what your game plan was for getting into physics via fiction? Um, to, ex to explore uh, essentially uh, the kind of feelings that would 
sort of well up within me when I was reading physics, when I was reading Einstein's general relativity or reading about particle physics. I mean, these are, uh, these are terms that put people off. You know, if you mention the word physics, unfortunately, my book itself has the word physics in the title. Uh, <laughs> I like the title, but I can imagine that the word uh, physics or the words particle physics and relativity and all these, um, they, they, they tend to make a lot of people just turn away thinking that this is not worth my time. And uh, in the novel, my interest was that to somehow couch all those things within the structure of a novel, within the you know within within storytelling about average people, normal people that who are not doing sort of cutting edge physics, but somehow are affected by the physics. So the the intent was to present conceptual aspects of physics uh, without being new agey about it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I I have a very hard time with uh, portrayal of physics when it's sort of mixed up with mm. um, mysticism. I mean, mm. they, they have their place, each mm. one. And uh, I, at least I don't see a connection at this point. Mm. And most physicists would also say that they don't see any connection at this point. <laughs> so so in a sense, just using what we know of the natural world, and, and, and there's a lot we know. There's some amazing stuff we know. And that itself brings about, at least for me personally, a certain liberation. You know, it, it just takes the edge off what the more mundane aspects of life seem to you know bear down upon you with so uh, that's what i wanted to explore in the novel like i said i got stuck and i couldn't figure out it's still there it's bubbling away but maybe this research might help towards that um well you just spoke of your um your travels to these uh these physics laboratories as a pilgrimage and that's exactly how i read it in your book as well and i thought maybe um we might want to start with the very first site in your book yeah and this is the one lab you went to or the one observatory that wasn't really cutting edge at all. It's historical. Yes. Mount Wilson yeah. in Southern California. Yeah. The, the book opens with uh, sort of this historical chapter or chapter about the history of cosmology. And I went to see uh, the 100-inch telescope that was responsible for um, showing us that the universe was expanding. In fact, it showed us more than that. It showed us that, first of all, that our universe was more than the Milky Way, that there were galaxies outside of mm. the Milky Way. And then not not just that there were galaxies outside, but these galaxies were moving away from us. And it was our first intimations of the idea that uh, the universe might have begun in a big bang. Uh, and uh, I was really fortunate to have with me as a guide uh, a 90-year-old gentleman called Don Nicholson. Uh, he's a volunteer guide, and uh, he's someone who actually was a teenager when Edwin Hubble, who used this telescope to great effect, uh, was working at the observatory. So it was uh, it was like a living link to Hubble. And Hubble, as, as you said, is the guy who really uh, helped kick off this big question that, that lingers, which is, uh, why is the universe expanding? He was one of the first to notice that distant galaxies were speeding away from us. Yes, he was. A couple of uh, a couple of facts. When you say a hundred inches, you're referring to. I'm referring to the diameter of the primary mirror. Mm-hmm. This is a reflecting telescope. It uses a this, big mirror. Yes, it's a it's a. I think it's about a four or five ton mirror, uh, which again for its time was quite amazing. Now, now the um, expansion of the universe that that Hubble noticed and that's identified with him uh, was or was not due to what we now call dark energy. So uh, what Hubble noticed was essentially the expansion of the universe 
that started because of the Big Bang. And uh, dark energy is something that is supposed to be causing that expansion itself to to accelerate. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, different from what Hubble had discovered. Um, of course, Mount Wilson was your first stop in the book, and it's uh, now uh, about 100 years old. You went to much more contemporary, much more advanced telescopes. I want to hear about w one group of telescopes in particular. These are uh, in the Atacama Desert in Chile, this incredibly high and dry desert in the Andes. Yes, very high altitude desert uh, in the in the Chilean Andes. And it's a host uh, it plays host to a, a whole bunch of telescopes and I went to see one particular set which uh, are amongst the newest and the most sophisticated and uh, it's called the Very Large Telescope. Uh, it's a quartet of uh, uh, 8.2-meter class. They're called the 8-meter class telescopes. And there, there are four of them. Eight meters. They're more than 25 feet across yes. these mirrors, right? Yes. These are reflecting telescopes. Yep. And there's four of them. There's four of them, one in each telescope. There, So there are four uh -huh. telescopes. Now, uh, you might wonder why one needs to go to these extremely hostile places to build your telescopes. And the reason actually is very simple. The Earth's atmosphere... The lower layers are highly turbulent, uh, and there's lots of water vapor in most places. And uh, water vapor is uh, an extremely big problem for light. Uh, so imagine light that's been traveling for, you know, 8 billion years or something, and then it encounters this tiny, tiny layer of atmosphere on Earth in the last fractions of a second of a journey through the cosmos. Mm. It gets smudged. Absolutely. And we live here in, on the coast, a very moist environment, and not a good one for stargazing for that very reason. Yes. And and the, the best way to avoid these things is to find a dry place that's high up uh, uh, in altitude so that you can escape the lower layers of the uh, atmosphere, the dense, turbulent layers, but also by going to the Atacama Desert. Now, this is a place where there are some parts of the Atacama Desert where there hasn't been rain for decades. I mean, there there's not a blade of grass. There's not a... Not, not even cactus of any kind. Oh, nothing. 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 Absolutely nothing. Not, yeah. lit, there's no sign of life. In fact, it is so dead that uh, NASA uses this place to test its rovers and you know just uh, do the experiments that they do uh, when they when they do experiments looking for life in extreme places. This is one of the places they go and try mm. to find something, and mm. you know, it's it's a hostile place. There's a, a striking photograph on the cover of your book. Yes, it's this incredibly stark. Yes vegetationless, dusty-looking, you know, mountainscape. Yeah. And then in the center of it, this shining white collection of domes yeah. that really look like some kind of mythical city. I think you're, you're describing it really well. That's exactly how it feels when you go there. Um, you, you take a road trip from this coastal town of Antofagasta, and uh, the whole region is dry and dusty, and, I mean, it, it just endless dryness. And then you come to Paranal and suddenly, you know, in the middle of this desert, there are these silver domes of these telescopes. It is a, it is an awesome sight. And then there's also the residence for the astronomers. I mean, it's an impossible place to live. So the astronomers have built a, a residence where they stay when they're doing the observing. And you walk in uh, to this subterranean facility. You have to go down a ramp and you open these massive sort of steel doors. There's some sort of airlock, you, two sets of doors that you go through and you open the final set and you're literally hit by humidity because they've maintained inside the dome 
this extraordinary humidity, which people need. Uh, you know, as, as soon as you come from outside and you go in, you can feel it. It just hits you in the face. Mm. You're a lush green garden inside. It's called the Very Large Telescope, though, in fact, there are four very large telescopes. Yes. Uh, so it tells you how good astronomers are at naming their telescopes. Uh, <laughs> you know, first of all, it's called the Very Large Telescope, which you would think they would have found something more <laughs> dramatic. Um, just to tell you what they're planning to name their next telescope, they're going to call it the Extremely Large Telescope. Uh, and uh, and if their plans work out, the, the one after that is the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope. No. Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, that one has a nice acronym. It's called OWL. So, <laughs> but uh, something tells me this nomenclature has has its limits. I mean, you can't get very far beyond overwhelmingly large, can you? Well, they come up with nice <laughs> different ways of uh, not uh, being very clever with their names. There's uh, there's another group which is building the next big telescope, and they just call it the thirty meter telescope. Oh, that's much better. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But uh, the purpose of these telescopes, in part, is to to look at more distant objects than previous telescopes were able to look at. Yes. Yeah? So these guys, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, are able to look at those very distant galaxies that do show the effects of dark energy pushing them away. Right. Unlike the old Mount Wilson Observatory, which was only able to look at uh, nearby galaxies. Right. What can they learn about dark energy? Well, the the big thing that we need to know at this point is whether dark energy has changed over time. So if you take a given volume of space, has it always have did it always have the same dark energy density or did that dark energy density change with time? Mm. And uh and the answer will dictate how the expansion rate would have changed or the the flip side the the other way of looking at it is by saying if we could understand how the expansion rate has changed with time we can work out from that whether the dark energy density has changed with time and that will give us clues about what the right theory would be mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it's sort of the clue that we need to anchor our theories to some sort of reality now you mentioned the dark energy density and uh maybe you can answer a a conundrum that i have with dark energy and that is that uh as we know, the universe is expanding. More space is being created. Yeah. Dark energy seems to be this energy that's inherent in space. Right. The density seems very possibly to be constant, even right. as you create more space. Right. So in essence, are we creating more energy and violating the conservation of energy as the universe expands? Is there more and more and more dark energy all told? Hmm. Uh, I'll have to think through this, Robert. Uh, this is a... Uh, get back to me. I'll have to get back to you on this. <laughs> um, another interesting question around the, the issue of the density of, of dark energy, and that is the, the, the repulsive force that's inherent in a particular volume of space. We don't know exactly what it is, but it seems to be about right to create a universe. I mean, it is obviously just right to create a universe like ours, which includes stars and planets and therefore life. Right. And a lot of things about the universe seem to be just right for life. Yeah. I mean, obviously, since we wouldn't be here if they weren't. Right. And this leads to something that uh, physicists call the anthropic principle. Right. Uh, it comes up a lot in your book. It does. And I think it's uh, it's a question that will have to be confronted. And uh, there are so the basically what the principle is saying in, in a very loosely stated manner, if the universe were any different we wouldn't be here. And it's because we are here, we're able to ask these questions. Uh, if the if the values of, say, the dark energy or other fundamental constants of nature were any different, the universe probably would look very different. There wouldn't be any life, and we wouldn't be 
sitting around asking such questions. Now, that just sounds like a tautology, circular reasoning. It does feel like that, and, and in, in part it is that. And But the point there is that, uh, it, 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 first of all, it, it frustrates many physicists uh, because uh, it seems like you're throwing up your hands and saying, well, the universe is just what it is, and you know, if it were any different, we wouldn't be around asking these questions. Yeah, I, I want to... Um clarify what I think might be a popular misinterpretation of the anthropic principle, that it is not saying, isn't it a miracle? Isn't it, um, gee, uh, hinting at some divine intervention that all of the constants of the universe seem tuned for uh, the creation of life? They're not. They're saying exactly the opposite. They're saying exactly the opposite. Basically, uh, it depends on, you know, if there's only one universe. This This actually segues nicely to another sort of issue that is very popular in today's physics, which is the idea that there there are more universes. So if you have just one universe and uh, and you find that this particular universe has fundamental constants uh, all sort of precisely tuned in order for the universe to be what it is, and there are many uh, things in the laws of physics which suggest that these constants can take on any value, why do they have this value? So mm-hmm. if there's only one universe, you are confronted with that question, and you have no answer for it, uh, unless you have a theory that can explain it, which we don't at this point. Um, then you're confronted with a universe that seems fine-tuned, and it should have these constants should have taken on any random value, but they haven't. They seem to be uh, they seem to have particular values. But physicists, what they are beginning to talk about is, is this idea that well. There are more universes. There's maybe you know ten to the five hundred, ten to the thousand universes, where what it what then happens is that each of these universes can have fundamental constants and laws of physics that are you know randomly determined at the beginning of the universe, say at each Big Bang, and uh, and we just happen to be in one where the properties were randomly set to be this. There is no divine intervention. In fact, the multiverse does away with any notion of divinity or anyone sort of intelligently designing such a universe. The multiverse is this theoretical collection of all possible universes. Right. Each one a kind of roll of the dice. Yeah. Uh, we happen to live in the one where our number came up for, for life to be created. But without a multiverse, if there's only one universe... Then then we, we have to confront this issue of why do the fundamental constants of nature mm. have have the values they mm. do. And and even even among the sort of uh, physicists who uh, don't like the idea of a multiverse, they they still have to come up with an answer for that, and that would be the goal of something like a theory of everything, mm-hmm. which would try to somehow, from first principles, tell you why um, the universe is what it is. Yeah, and if it turns out that uh, indeed the multiverse idea has legs, then you may not need to explain why you know this universe has the properties that it does because you can essentially say it's a, it's a random chance and we just mm-hmm. like you said we've thrown the right kind of di- you know numbers on the dice but uh, but then there's the bigger question of the multiverse how do you go about finding evidence of other universes that just opens up another can of worms mm. so uh, that's why i think physics is at it's at a stage in its evolution where i think we're just about to break open into something quite dramatic. Hmm. And what, what do you think is going to break it open? Um, 
depends again who you talk to. There, there are hopes for you know another Einstein to come along uh, <laughs> who could see the whole thing from a completely new perspective and tell us that we've been looking at things in the wrong way. Or perhaps one of these experiments. Uh, or my, yeah, and, and I, I, I think uh, one of these experiments could be the ones, uh, you know, to be the right one to crack the door open a little bit. Let's talk about another one. We've been talking about mountaintops and telescopes. Um, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum and go underground. Yeah. Tell me about the um, Sudan. Yeah. Iron mine in Minnesota. Yes, so so the Sudan iron mine in Minnesota is a is an abandoned iron mine. It used to be one of uh, America's uh, premier iron ore mines. Uh, started in the late 1880s and functioned all the way up till 1960s, and then it was shut down because it was not viable anymore economically. And then, uh, about two decades ago, physicists decided that they needed the mind to do certain experiments. So we were talking about dark matter earlier. Now, one of the ways in which you can confirm your theories of dark matter is if you can actually detect a dark matter particle. So one of the ideas that physicists have had, they figured that if you take crystals of germanium or, or silicon, extremely pure crystals, and you could monitor the crystal uh, in terms of its temperature, and wait for a dark matter particle to come and hit the nucleus of one of the atoms. And if the temperature of the crystal were to rise a little bit, then maybe they could say that they have detected a dark matter particle. The The idea of these dark matter particles is that they must be weakly interacting. They must be something that obviously doesn't reflect light, otherwise we'd see them, right. or other forms of radiation, we we would detect that. Since we detect nothing, they must not interact with very much. Right. So that's uh, one of the theoretical constraints on what a dark matter particle must be like is that it interacts really weakly with normal matter. What that means is it does not interact electromagnetically. So it, it, it will pretty much go through matter uh, without any problem. And the only way you're going to detect one is if one were to hit a nucleus of an atom directly. Mm. And But the nucleus is such a small part of an atom that for most part a dark matter particle will just go right through matter. Most of what we call matter and think of as, as solid, in the case of solid matter, is empty space. It is. Almost so, all of it is empty space. Pretty much. The reason it feels solid is because we or other objects interact with it and are sort of repelled by it. Yes. But if you don't have any interactions, if you're neutral like this hypothetical dark matter, you can just pass right through unless you happen to hit a nucleus. Uh, I think there's one calculation that one of the physicists did and told me about where he said, if you stack lead all the way from here to the sun and then fired a dark matter particle at it. Now, lead is extremely dense. We think of it as extremely dense and heavy material. Right. And he calculated that the dark matter particle had a 50-50 chance of going right through that lead all the way to the sun. Well, if that's the case, what chance does a detector in this Sudan iron mine, which, by the way, is a, a half mile underground in Minnesota, to shield this area from interference from other particles like cosmic rays and things right. like that, uh, what chance does it have of detecting a dark matter particle if such exists? So, so there the numbers are in our favor. Um, our galaxy is thought to be awash in these dark matter particles. Uh, you know, the dark matter uh, outweighs normal matter ten to one. Uh -huh. So there should be every moment, uh, any of these small detectors, about a billion dark matter particles should be passing through it every second. So the, so the numbers are in our favor. Statistics are in our favor. And they're not. So let me just tell you briefly why they're not. Uh, these detectors, they're essentially, like we discussed, 
they're waiting for a dark matter particle to hit the nucleus of one of these uh, atoms. But there's so much other stuff around uh, on the surface of the Earth that create the same signal, cosmic rays, like you said. There's radioactivity. Our bodies are radioactive enough to mess up these detectors. So that's why they decided they had to go underground uh, to at least protect themselves from the majority of the cosmic rays. So they go half a mile into this mine, and that's where the lab is, and that's where they're doing their experiments. But even that's not enough. There's, there's still cosmic rays that make it through half a mile of rock, and, uh, and there are people because we have to run the experiments. So, you know, we are radioactive. We are emitting radiation, which is enough for uh, the detectors to be confused. Um, and there's uh, just the mine itself is radioactive. There's radon in the mine. And so they have all sorts of shielding around these detectors. And one particular uh, uh, shield that really amazed me was... I was hoping you were going to mention this. Yes, it's, it's a fascinating <laughs> bit of, uh, you know, history that, uh, somehow ties together with dark matter. So the way you would protect your uh, detector from radioactivity would be to shield it with lead. Mm -hmm. And they have lots of lead around the detector, something which, like... Which dark matter could pass through. Which dark but matter radioactivity could, theoretically shouldn't. Shouldn't. Yeah. But as it happens, lead uh, has lead 210, an isotope of lead, which is radioactive itself. So uh, now what do you do with that? You've, you've, you've put a shield which is... Uh, which is trying to protect you from radioactivity, but the shield itself has radioactive uh, elements in it. So uh, in this case, they, they found uh, a person who was shelling, uh, selling lead from a ship that had sunk off the coast of France in the 18th century. And that had lead which had, in which the radioactive isotopes had decayed. So this lead was now put inside the newer lead to shield, shield the experiment from the radioactivity in the newer lead. And uh, and that's what it is, layers and layers of shielding uh, to prevent any particle from hitting this detector, which could be construed as a dark matter particle. Antique lead. They had Antique lead. Salvage lead. Right. Wow. And the, and the guy who <laughs> sold the physicist the lead got into trouble with the French customs for selling archaeological material. Wow. <laughs> I would have thought so, too. Yes. <laughs> but it's down there in the mine. It's down there in the you mine. You went down there. You went down the mine shaft. I did. It's a, what did um, it feel like? Um, I was more than a little scared. Um, it's a it's a three minute ride. Uh, it's a it's a mine that goes down twenty seven levels, and uh, the lab is at the deepest level, the twenty seventh level. And you have this tiny cage, uh, a few feet across by a few feet across in terms of the footprint of the cage, and maybe about eight feet high. And a few people get into it, and it's a rattling ride. It's it's extremely noisy. Uh, you can imagine it's you're you're, you're going yeah it's deafening yeah. extremely deafening and uh, and pitch dark <laughs> and uh, I, I I sort of had to brace myself against the cage walls all the way down. Once you were down there, what did it feel like? Um, it's chilly. It's a, <laughs> I think it's a steady something like fifty Fahrenheit. Uh, it's it's chilly for me coming from India. Um, and uh, uh, for Minnesotans, it was absolutely no problem. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it reminds you, there's a very peculiar smell. And people who have been in underground parking lots will probably identify with that smell. That's how it smells. Mm. Uh, and uh, also, there's this occasional bat that f you know, flies around. Uh, and it's, it's a strange place. Uh, uh, you have to imagine that before humans descended that deep, there was no life there. And, uh, you know, so as we dug in, uh, as the miners went in, uh, so did 
life, and uh, so you find critters now. Um, a lot of these places you went were virtually lifeless. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Sudan mine would have been at one. I mean, that far deep into the earth at that time, without the mine, there would have been no life. Atacama Desert, yes, very lifeless. And then the the coolest place you went of all. Coolest in terms of the temperature or <laughs> the, the coolness factor? I, I'm I'm thinking literally here. The South Pole. The yes, the uh, literally the coldest place was the South Pole uh, in summer. When I landed there, it was the austral summer, um, late December, and uh, it was minus about twenty five centigrade. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's a place that is at a high altitude. People don't think of the South Pole as being a high altitude place, but it's nine thousand feet of ice. It's not only got the cold and the isolation, but the altitude which makes me marvel all the more at those early explorers who got there on foot, like uh, Robert Scott and uh, Roald Amundsen, the two two parties that uh, made it to the pole in this race to the pole. Amundsen beat Scott, and Scott, his party, died. But these guys were trekking along in this extraordinary, um, you know, challenging environment at 9,000 feet. Uh, More than 9,000 feet, because when you're getting to the South Pole, you actually have to go over parts of the Antarctic Plateau that are higher, and then you start coming down. So they actually went higher than that. And... uh and we we didn't mention Shackleton, who yeah. who made it almost almost to the South Pole. He got had to, to within around, a few yeah. hundred miles of the South yeah. Pole and turned around because yeah. they had run out of sort of supplies, and he didn't want to risk the lives of his men. Mm. Tell us what the physicists are doing at the South Pole. The particular uh, set of experiments or or observations that they're attempting there that you witnessed. So the one the experiment that I went to see is something called Ice Cube. Uh, and what they are doing is they are monitoring a cubic kilometer of East Antarctic ice. Uh, what they're doing is looking for subatomic particles called neutrinos from outer space. Now, these are not hypothetical particles. We know they exist. We've measured them in labs before. But they're looking for such particles from outer space. And I'll, I'll get into why in a minute. Uh, the The idea is as a neutrino comes and hits a molecule of water, uh, it sort of emits a flash of blue light. It's called Cherenkov light. And uh, if you can monitor this blue light, if you can measure the properties of this light, you can work out where the neutrino came from. And uh, the problem, though, is neutrinos are a bit like dark matter particles. They will go right through matter uh, again, And uh, except in this case they are not hypothetical. We know they exist. Um, and uh, the challenge then becomes uh, to monitor large volumes of ice or you can also do it, do it with water, but in, at the South Pole, they're using ice. If you monitor a large enough volume, then maybe statistically, again, you up your chances of being able to detect one tiny collision you know, over uh, time. The ice is part of the detector itself. Yes. The water molecules are you know, in a, part of the device, yes. which also has these um, photomultipliers, which yes. will then pick up this light if it's emitted during this collision. Right. So what they're doing is they're essentially drilling uh, deep, deep into the eastern Antarctic ice sheet. The ice sheet is about uh, 9,000 feet thick at, at that point, and they have to drill nearly two and a half kilometers um, deep, so almost to the bottom of this ice sheet, and lower these uh, spheres, which are called uh, photomultiplier tubes. Actually, in uh, at the South Pole, they're called digital optical modules or DOMs, but the idea is the same. What, what these tubes do is that they convert the light into an electrical signal. Like a solar cell, maybe. 
A little bit. Yeah, much more sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so they're, they're drilling multiple holes in the ice sheet, uh, each over a mile deep. Yeah. And in order to put these uh, photomultiplier tubes, thousands of them, deep in the ice where they might pick up a neutrino uh, water molecule collision. Right. And they're doing this drilling with hot water. Yes, which is what amazes you when you go there because water is just the wrong thing to be using at the South Pole. It just freezes in an instant. I was thinking all these guys should just pee in the hole, right? Wouldn't that do it? Except that when you look at the size of the holes <laughs> that you need, uh, you would need a whole lot of drillers uh, to do that. Um, it they, they, they thought about other ways of drilling into the ice, but these photomultiplier tubes are more than a foot in diameter. And so you essentially need holes that are quite wide. And you cannot just drill it with mechanical equipment or, you know, your diamond-tipped drill bits or anything like that. So what they've come up with is very ingenious and very hard to do. Uh, they essentially pour boiling water uh, into the ice. And this water is being pumped into the ice at uh, 1,000 PSI, 1,000 pounds per square inch. So that's very, very high-pressure water and boiling water. Uh, and you're literally melting a hole in the ice. You witnessed this, and you were told not to turn your back on the hole? Yes. That Why? Was the f- the Why? first piece of advice I got <laughs> as soon as I entered the – they have this thing called the tower operating structure, which is just a shack around the hole that's being drilled. Um, and, uh, well, that that was the safety instruction I was given. Why? Lest you just sort of walk backwards into the hole? Yes, because it's it's an open hole. It's got It's got some metal – covering the edges, but the hole is open. So if you fall in, you're, you're going to fall right in. and uh, Just just fall a mile or so into this boiling water? That's no big deal, right? It's, it's probably <laughs> freezing water by then. The water doesn't stay boiling. But I can't imagine them getting out, anyone out of those holes. It would be incredible. No, but uh, I, I walked up to the edge of the hole just to peer in, and my knees went wobbly. <laughs> So I was very glad I didn't turn my back to the wall, to the <laughs> hole, yeah. Now, this is all in order to detect some neutrinos from outer space. These yes. little particles that have no charge and therefore can pass right through matter and travel great distances because right. they don't bounce off of objects. They aren't interfered with by electromagnetic radiation. Right. What are they going to tell us if they find these? So um, there are many, uh, there are many, many different uh, sort of reasons that astronomers have for monitoring neutrinos. Uh, but in for cosmology, I had a very particular uh, interest, which was dark matter particles. When they accumulate in great numbers at the center of the galaxy, they can collide with each other, annihilate, and spew out neutrinos. And uh, as far as the book is concerned, I was looking at that particular. Uh, piece of the puzzle in terms of Mm, cosmology. mm. How can a neutrino telescope help us detect whether there is dark matter at the center of the galaxy? There's one other very important thing that the Ice Cube telescope might help us with, which is um, we were talking earlier about this idea that uh, gravity has to be combined with the other fundamental forces of nature into a theory of quantum gravity. Now, uh, there are there are suggestions from attempts to come up with such theories that space, the vacuum of space, might not be entirely smooth, that it could have, it could be frothy, it could, it, there could be virtual particles popping in and out, uh, microscopic black holes. Basically, space-time at the microscopic level might have a structure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it that, might be bumpy. It might be bumpy. Irregular. 
yes. Uh, or uh, also there's another way to look at it that space-time might not be divisible infinitely. So you can't keep breaking it up into smaller and smaller chunks. There will come a limit beyond which space-time cannot be broken it's into. It's granular. It could be granular. We yeah. don't know that yet. But so one of the things is that if these theories are right, then they will have an effect on particles that are traveling through space-time. Particles with different energies could interact differently and we could detect that difference. You can't do that in the lab because uh, particles don't travel long enough for these effects to accumulate. But imagine a neutrino that's coming from a few billion light years away. Now that would accumulate, the, the effects of any such structure of space-time, that effect would accumulate and show up in neutrinos. And, and they're the perfect particle because those perturbations, those disturbances you're talking about wouldn't have come from interactions with other particles. Since right. neutrinos are sort of oblivious to, to matter in general. Right. And you say that that structure, that that supposed or hypothetical structure of space-time being irregular, frothy, discontinuous, is a prediction of string theory. String theory has some some models of string theory predict, predict a frothiness. We have to be careful with string theory. There are so many models that so some models of string theory predict a frothiness. There are also competing theories of quantum gravity, like uh, something called loop quantum gravity, which uh, which says that space time is just uh, a fabric that's been woven up by gravitational field lines. This is a far less popular theory by it's, Lee Smolin, Yeah, uh, it's by yeah, it's people. It, it was started the the physics for the loop quantum quantum gravity uh, model was started by uh, a physicist called Abhay Ashtekar uh -huh. uh, and then uh, Lee Smolin and uh, another physicist called uh -huh. Carlo Rovelli. Um, so, yeah, Lee Smolin and others then mm -hmm. took up uh, the work that Ashtekar did, and uh, it's become this idea called loop quantum gravity. Again, um, no concrete predictions. So right. they're not any closer to uh, meeting experiment than string theory is. I see. Now, we should say that all these experiments that you talk about in your book, these uh, extraordinary mammoth detectors, these gigantic physics experiments meant to pick up these very, very subtle clues from the universe, none of them will prove or disprove string theory. No, not yet. So so essentially, uh, as far as string theory is concerned, I, I focus on two uh, two things in the book. One is that there are some predictions from uh, models that use string theory uh, about the curvature of space-time. Now, as far as we know, we've measured the curvature to a fair degree of accuracy, and it's flat. But there's enough give in those measurements that it could be slightly negative. And some string theory models, again, predict that it should be slightly there negative. There you go. So the most we're going to get with regard to string theory is maybe, say, which models are more likely to be true. Yes. But and not that, string theory as a whole. Yes. And that particular prediction itself is controversial, the curvature. Uh. <laughs> so there is much, there's back and forth on that itself. Yeah. But at least there is something there that we can, it goes this way. If we measure the curvature and it turns out to be slightly positive as opposed to slightly negative, that's actually a problem for string theory. That it, it, they would have a much harder time trying to come up with models that, you know, give us a positive curvature. I see. So, so the negative curvature would help them. But that's all. It's only going to help things. It's not going to prove or disprove anything. Mm -hmm. the, the biggest uh, uh, thing that could come out of these experiments from uh, sort of in support of string theory would probably come from the Large Hadron Collider, the particle collider that's just restarted again in, in near Geneva. And there... 
uh, we have to go to an idea called supersymmetry. And uh, the, the world, as the, the universe as we know it, the, the standard model of particle physics that describes all the particles and the forces that act on these particles, except gravity, uh, we think that there is physics beyond the standard model. Mm -hmm. There are reasons to uh, think so. And one of the extensions to the standard model is this idea that all the particles that we know of has a partner particle. So the electron has something called an S-electron uh, or selectron. Uh, the photon has something called a photino. So, uh, and and the, there is a mathematical symmetry that links these particles together, and it's called supersymmetry. And we could potentially create supersymmetric particles at the Large Hadron Collider. And if we do that, that's going to be uh, a big deal for string theory in the sense that most successful string theory models in terms of their mathematics require the universe to be supersymmetric. Mm. So if the universe is supersymmetric, then that would be a big boost for string theory. It would be uh, necessary but not sufficient. It is necessary. Well, it, it's not even necessary. There are string theory <laughs> models, so that's why it gets complicated. <laughs> this but, is the problem with string theory for some people who want, uh, you know, who, who, who like to have proof at the end of the day that it... Um, posit so many possible models. There's so many ways of putting it together that, uh, you know, if you if you disprove one, you still leave many, many open questions. There are, and that's very true. At the same time, uh, there is no competing theory. It's not like there are other theories waiting in the wings ready to other jump than, in. Other than quantum loop gravity. Yeah, loop quantum gravity. Loop quantum gravity. Yeah, um, and th that suffers from the same problem, is that, uh, you know, there are no predictions that actually mm -hmm. can be tested out in in the lab so um it is maybe it's an indication of how difficult the problem is mm -hmm. and uh, unless someone comes along and says that we're looking at it all wrong uh it seems like we are confronted with something that's quite formidable we should say that you did go to the LHC the large hadron collider this behemoth uh that straddles the border between uh, Switzerland and France near Geneva huge circular underground tunnel right what, 15, 16 miles in uh, circumference? Yeah, 16 point something miles, yeah. Where, where protons are accelerated to near light speed yeah. and smashed together. Yeah. And, and why do you want to do that exactly? Um, essentially, you're trying to recreate conditions that are closer and closer to the Big Bang. So you need higher and higher energies to do that. And, and the reason you want to do that is you want to probe matter uh, even more deeply than we already do higher energies means probing to smaller and smaller scales smaller and smaller scales and higher energies also means that you're going back in time so there is this idea that as you go back in time to the very early universe just fractions of a second after the big bang um, there are properties that the universe had that is that are that don't exist today because the universe is a very different place i want to jump in and say by going back in time, you mean recreating the conditions that were present billions of years ago, not actually doing any time traveling. Yes, no, no time travel <laughs> is sorry, possible. Well, we, we get into machines like the Large Hadron Collider, people imagine all kinds of crazy things. Yes, so that's, a, that's a perfectly good point. No, I didn't mean time traveling. All I meant is recreating conditions of the early universe. So in essence, uh, to see a smaller object, you need a bigger microscope, and that's why this largest of all particle accelerators is needed these days. It's, it's actually... A slightly different. There's a slightly different way of looking at it. What uh, we were talking of these supersymmetric particles. Yeah. Now, 
we have never seen them so far. So what that means is that uh, none of the particle accelerators so far have been able to create one. So they must be very big. They must be very massive. And in order to create massive particles, you need more and more energy. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the Large Hadron Collider is going to be the most energetic and most powerful collider we've ever built. And when these protons smash against each other, they literally uh, dissipate in, you know, into energy. And from that energy, out pop other particles. And it's possible that one of the particles that pops out is a supersymmetric particle. It could even be a dark matter uh-huh. particle. Uh-huh. And those particles eventually decay and become the particles that we know of electrons, photons, things like that. Uh-huh. And we detect those end products of the decay and work backwards and figure out what the original particle might have been. And the hope is that we will create something like a supersymmetric particle. We might create a dark matter particle. And there are theories in which supersymmetric particles and dark matter particles also um, seem to be the same. So among the many things the Large Hadron Collider could uh, produce is the first evidence of supersymmetric particles, maybe the first evidence of a dark matter particle. Yes. Uh, first evidence of extra dimensions uh, beyond our three dimensions of space and one dimension of time that we're used to. Yeah. And that, too, is a part of string theory. Yes, and um, string theory has uh, one, of the, one of the issues with string theory that some uh, physicists uh, have problems with is the idea that these strings have to vibrate in 10 dimensions or more. And uh, they have to do that in order for the theory to be mathematically consistent. And, uh, of course, we are only aware of three dimensions of space and one of time. So the question is, where are these extra dimensions? And the idea then is that these extra dimensions are curled up compacted, as they say in string theory, into extremely small volumes that remain undetectable to us and our instruments. Now, um, at the LHC, the LHC will not be will not be able to detect the kind of extra dimensions that string theory requires. Uh-huh. There are other <laughs> theories of extra dimensions. I thought that you were going to say that. <laughs> so, so in terms of the LHC, I think the, uh, the key thing that might be done that in favor of string theory is the detection of supersymmetry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, to get a little more tangible, I want you to. You went to the LHC. Uh, you took what the elevator deep underground to see this. This probably the largest uh, and most sophisticated machine human beings have ever built. Uh, it is very much so. It is uh, the biggest machine we've ever built. The LHC itself just refers to the machine that is accelerating the protons. Around so, the circular racetrack. Yes. So you have protons going clockwise and protons going counterclockwise. So that is the Large Hadron Collider. Right. So what happens then is that at four points along this circular path, the the beams of protons cross. And at each point where they cross, they smash into each other. And it's at those points that you have detectors. And because the detectors are essentially this mass of electronics that cocoons the very region where these collisions are happening. And I went into one of those caverns to see one such detector called Atlas. And it's a gigantic cavern. And I have to tell you one story about this cavern. Uh, I was standing there just watching and looking at this mass of metal and you know electronics and all sorts of uh, equipment. But the thing that stuck in my mind was something the physicist said. He said, this cavern is so huge that it moves up as a bubble of air would in water. It's this. covered by rock. Exactly. Well, how does it float like a bubble? It in doesn't. This rock? It's, it's pushing up because it's. You have taken away all this amount of rock 
So there are hydrostatic forces now that are literally causing this volume of air to push up against the rock. And and the entire cavern, uh, at least in the early days, was moving up about 0.2 millimeters every year. And that's how big it is. And uh, that tells you the scale of civil engineering involved. And in order for them to build their detector, Atlas, which is itself 7,000 tons in weight, and the cavern is about 13 stories high because there are walkways that are ringing the cavern, and there are 13 stories of those. And in order that all this equipment doesn't warp as the cavern moves, the floor of the cavern is five meters thick reinforced steel and concrete. That's uh, probably about 20 feet thick. Uh, so that the entire floor then moves up as one and doesn't warp. But it's still moving, right? At very some, slowly. Very yeah. slowly. But enough to have an impact on the detectors because, remember, these detectors are looking at things that are the width of a human hair apart. I mean, they're really, really looking at tiny, tiny things. So this movement of 0.2 millimeters per year is significant for them. So they have to monitor everything about their equipment. They have to know where the detectors are at every moment in time and essentially do all this calculation just to know what's happening with the detectors in order to know what's coming out of the collisions. Now, uh, the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, um, was supposed to come online, what, about two years ago? Then there was something of an accident that yep. delayed its uh, maiden voyage. Yep. It did come online for a while. Uh, now offline again or back online? It's back online now. And, uh, and what has been found by this thing so far? Well, so far they've just been ramping up the energy I of see. the exit. So essentially they are still working in the energy range that other accelerators have achieved. I so see. they haven't – particle physics is all about collecting lots and lots of data. And they haven't run for long enough to have – huge amounts of data mm. that would allow them to say something statistically significant. Okay. But uh, there is the possibility that they may not find the things they're looking for. Uh, for instance, supersymmetric particles. Right. They may exist in this energy domain that the Large Hadron Collider explores, right. or maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. So if they come up empty, they can just say, well, you know, they're just a little smaller or a little you know, more energetic than... So so what, if they don't find it at the LHC, what, it, what that means is that the universe might still be supersymmetric, but at much higher energies than the LHC can probe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the LHC is still ramping up, so it's got a good excuse for not finding anything yet. What about, for instance, Ice Cube at the South Pole? Has it found any outer space neutrinos? No, neutrinos from outer space still remain uh, um, uh, much soft, sought after commodity. Uh, the only neutrinos from outer space that we've seen so far are neutrinos from the sun mm-hmm. and uh, a bunch of neutrinos that came from a supernova in 1987. But the, the real prize, these neutrinos from deep space, they haven't found yet. No, none yet. And the Sudan uh, dark matter detector, has it found any dark matter yet? Uh, not yet, except this December. Uh, there was a, a considerable excitement about two events in their detectors uh, that they couldn't explain away as background noise. Uh, so th- there was uh, reasonable sort of excitement in the dark matter community that uh, something had indeed been found, except for one uh, s- small sticking thing, which is that uh, there's one in four chance that even these two events were caused by some sort of 
background noise. Mm. And that in particle physics is not a good enough result. So no one is claiming discovery, uh, rightfully so, because it just could be some random noise that happened in the detector. But they did see something tantalizing. I think the direct dark matter detection experiments like the one in the Sudan mine, uh, they are becoming sensitive enough that if they don't see something soon enough, we'll know that we are on the wrong track. Let me ask you, though, Anil, um, if you were not a lover of physics and a guy who writes about physics, but an accountant who looked at the millions and millions and millions of dollars, the, the large-scale efforts it takes to mount these experiments to create labs deep underground or at the South Pole or on uh, in other forbidding environments uh, in search of extremely elusive and, in many cases, merely hypothetical conjectural phenomena that may never actually register a single hit, you know? Yes. <laughs> what would you say? If you were an accountant, what would you say? If I was an accountant, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to put myself inside the head of an accountant, but uh, I probably would be upset. Uh, but then that's been the story of humanity, isn't it? We can't stop asking these questions, and uh, there is something fascinating about wanting to understand the universe. Um, whether it can be justified in the context of the many other things that we need to do on Earth to take care of things like poverty and hunger, um, I think that's a valid argument to be having. Mm. My suspicion is that we'll never completely get away from doing these experiments because there is this urge inside us to understand our origins and uh, you can't do away, do away with that. Mm. No, it's just... Uh an interesting thing. In the beginning, physics, doing physics was really easy. Go back to Archimedes or something, and it was something you could do with just simple objects. The great discoveries of the 17th and 18th century were done, you know, in living rooms and in workshops, you know, using, again, simple objects. Yep. By now, um, and even into the 20th century, it was still possible to do them in ordinary laboratories. Now it takes you know, a gigantic effort, maybe not quite the size of the space program, but the Large Hadron Collider, you know, we're talking many billions of dollars, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we may be, to uh, crib the title of your book, At the Edge of Physics. This may be the last generation of physicists as we dig deeper and farther uh, into phenomena that are harder and harder to, to measure and uh, detect. This may be the last generation of physicists who really can muster the, the amount of money and the resources it takes to do these things. Possibly, but there are also uh, technological innovations that change how we do uh -huh. uh, science. So, you know, we might, there might be a time when we build colliders with different technologies that don't require... At home. A, maybe not at <laughs> home, but uh, but smaller than the Large Hadron Collider, for uh -huh. instance. And, and people are working towards that because they realize that uh, this can't go on forever. Uh, and there are energies that we need to probe that will not be possible on Earth. Uh, which actually brings us to space. There are natural processes in the universe that accelerate particles to much greater energies than we can ever do on Earth. So so a lot of the efforts are going into building space probes that can do the same physics mm -hmm. from space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, physics, uh, when we talk about theoretical physics, it's often depicted as a kind of intellectual heroism, you know, the long hours of thought, the um, bravery of of proposing something that might be thought 
to be crazy uh, or or highly unorthodox. But you dealt with physicists again in these extreme environments of frozen lake in Siberia, the South Pole, uh, even some of these mountaintop observatories. Uh, you know, really are challenging to live in. Um, there's a different kind of almost heroic um, effort involved in, the, in this kind of work. Yes, uh, I definitely think so. I think uh, these are not your run-of-the-mill physicists, uh, <laughs> the experimental physicists. Um, I, I think back to the one uh, experiment that I went to see uh, in uh, Siberia, the, the Lake Baikal Neutrino Telescope. Just as we talked of the uh, Ice Cube Neutrino Telescope, which is looking for neutrinos hitting ice, the Lake Baikal Telescope is doing the same but with neutrinos hitting water molecules. And uh, in order to do their work very in, in, in very with very little money, they actually have to work there during winter so that they can use the frozen surface of the lake as a platform and they set up their ice camp on top, drill holes in the ice and get their instruments out of the water, repair it, and then get out of the region before the ice melts. So they actually have to go there when the conditions are the harshest. Mm. And, and they have very little money. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, Russian science has had, you know, had to suffer for money. And uh, so they have had something like $20 million to work with over 20 years, which is nothing for these kind of science experiments. They live very simply uh, and uh, endure some very harsh conditions. Um, and they love it, as far as I can tell. Uh, they they would they go back every year and keep doing it. Yeah, I, I want to mention, by the way, we've been describing these absolutely spectacular and phenomenal environments uh, that you visited and where these physics, uh, this physics work is going on. Uh, and if people want to see some pictures, they can go to your website, edgeofphysics.com. Yes. Now, human beings have always sought wisdom in these remote places. And uh, maybe it's pure coincidence, but the relationship between these far-flung observatories and old-fashioned forms of wisdom-seeking like monasteries and temples, that connection is made in your book um, from the fact that the place where the astronomers are housed at Mount Wilson is called the monastery right. to the fact that the final place you, you visit in your book in the Indian Himalayas in this amazing valley where another observatory is located at high altitude. Right. There's also a Tibetan monastery. There. Yeah, it's a 400-year-old Buddhist monastery. And I must say that I've always, I was always fascinated by sort of this idea that mountaintops seem to host telescopes and monasteries. But it was when I was standing uh, on this mountaintop in uh, Ladakh in the Indian Himalayas uh, where the telescope was and looking across at this 400-year-old monastery that something really struck me that both the astronomers and the monks need solitude of a different kind, but they both need silence and solitude. The monks need to get away from so the, the distractions of modern life or any life at any time to sort of probe their inner minds, their inner being, uh, and come to the truths that they arrive at. Uh, but uh, the astronomers, uh, I realized, also need a kind of quiet, and that's the that's the silence of the environment. You don't need light pollution. You don't you don't need uh, radio waves being polluted by television or or mobile phone signals because all of these can completely mess up any observations you're doing. Um, and uh, it really made me feel that if we don't protect these places, uh, then we might end up 
being this population on Earth that has no way of building the kind of instruments, telescopes, and looking deeper into the universe, further back in time. It, it struck me that we would be like monks who are unable to look deeper into their own minds because they're distracted mm. by all the noise around them. Mm. And if we mess up our environment somehow, to the extent that we can't build these telescopes or build these instruments, then we'll be like a planet of people stuck on a very, in a very noisy environment, unable to look uh, back far enough to figure out our own beginnings. You said physicists don't like to get all mystical, and um, you're a science writer and a scientist by background and persuasion as well. But did you get a mystical feeling at any point during these, these travels? There were profound moments. Um, I wouldn't want to qualify it any other way. Uh, there, there were profound moments because you are confronted by immensity everywhere you go uh, in terms of the landscapes, in terms of the instruments, in terms of the questions that are being asked. And these are all enough to make you pause, uh, each one of them. You know, if you just went to the South Pole, that's enough to make you pause. If you just saw the Large Hadron Collider, uh, that, that, that gives you pause. And uh, so in that sense, all of these trips just kept reinforcing that whatever journey we're on is a profound one. And, uh, and we have to sort of tread our way carefully and figure it out. To what end, I don't know, but uh, we have to. Well, thank you for this time, Anil. My pleasure, Robert. Anil Ananthaswamy reports on physics and other subjects for New Scientist magazine. His book is The Edge of Physics, A Journey to Earth's Extremes to Unlock the Secrets of the Universe. And now, as promised in the interview, Anil did get back to me on that one puzzle I posed. Okay, Anil, so um, thanks for getting back together again with me uh, to answer that one question we left hanging, the one I raised, and um, which had perplexed me, which is, if um, the universe is expanding due to dark energy pushing things apart, and if the density of dark energy across space is remaining constant, then ipso facto, isn't the total amount of dark energy increasing? Um, yes, Robert, I think you're absolutely right. That's exactly what's happening. So as space-time is expanding, we're getting more and more dark energy in the universe. So the total amount of dark energy uh, in the universe is increasing day by day. Which led me to the second part of my question, and this one really makes me scratch my head. Doesn't that violate maybe the most uh, solemn commandment of physics, or at least of thermodynamics? Energy can neither be created nor destroyed? Um, no, because uh, that particular uh, law, the law of conservation of energy, holds true for space-time that is not expanding. So if you take a given volume of space-time, and uh, in, that, in that given volume of space-time, yes, that law of conservation of energy holds true. You cannot create new energy. But if space-time itself is expanding, then uh, you can create more energy, as, as happens with dark energy, and the law of conservation of energy doesn't get violated in that context. So because there's more and more space, you can have more and more energy. Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll go with you that far, but, but let me raise another question. The, the first law of thermodynamics, uh, conservation of energy, has always been used to uh, explain why you cannot have something from nothing, why you can't have a perpetual motion machine, for instance, why you can't drive an engine without putting energy into it. Now, let me ask you this. If you'd be willing to participate with me in a very kind of goofy-sounding thought experiment, what if um, 
I took a rope and uh, attached it at one end, uh, say, to a generator here on Earth, and attached it uh, on the other end to a distant galaxy. And as those galaxies are pushed apart by dark energy, couldn't I get some useful work out of all that? Well, it, it's first of all, it's going to take you an immense amount of energy to get that rope set up. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. I yeah. think you're, you're going to obviate the whole point of the experiment oh, right yeah, from but, the but, beginning. Well, you know, I, I did have uh, an inkling that it would be impractical to follow through with my scheme, but I thought that even if it was possible in some you know bizarre theoretical way that that would be a problem for physics, I had my own answer, uh, which, tell me if this is right or wrong, it, any such rope would not actually be pulling at all, because the space itself would be increasing, the rope itself would be getting longer. Um, there would be no pull. Yes, I, I think that I, I think that is the correct understanding of it. Yeah. Great. Now that we've uh, we've settled one problem, I want to ask about another law of physics that um, came up in your book. Uh, in just a very very brief aside, you mention something without uh, elaborating that also caused a great deal of perplexity for me and, and was something of a mind-blower. That is when you were talking about neutrino detectors. Uh, listeners will remember our little conversation about the neutrino detector deep in the ice at the South Pole, yeah. uh, which so far hasn't detected any of the uh, neutrinos they're looking for from, from deep space. But if they ever do, what they'll be seeing uh, is the result of a neutrino hitting a uh, nucleus of a water molecule in that ice and knocking loose a little particle called a muon, right? Right, right. Which is picked up by these detectors. Hmm. You wrote that such a muon would travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, faster than the speed of light in water. It cannot travel faster than the speed of light in vacuum, which is sort of the absolute cosmic speed limit. But uh, speed of light in water is less than the speed of light in vacuum. And any particle can travel faster than for instance, in this case, the speed of light in water, but it'll never go faster than the speed of light in vacuum. So yes, uh, it, it is going faster than the speed of light, but in a particular medium, uh, which doesn't violate the sort of absolute speed limit in the universe. Got it. So you just unblew my mind. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> well, thanks again, Anil. It's been great. My pleasure, Robert. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Anil Ananthaswamy and his book at edgeofphysics.com. Also, be sure to check out 7thAvenueProject.com, that's our website, for more information on this program. You can hear our latest shows, past shows, bonus audio available nowhere else, and other stuff. That is all for today's 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, Sunday at noon.